Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? 2 Corinthians 4. I love to uh, hook around in old museums uh, where most tourists go to the, the local tourist attractions. My greatest delight is to find an old museum and, and look around. And if I can get into the back rooms, that's, uh, that's even more interesting. You find all sorts of things back there. And one day I was uh, wandering through a museum with a friend of mine who was a young uh, student in archaeology. And we happened to come across a tablet that was still uncrated. In fact, they were in the process of uncrating. And I uh, stopped to look at it, and normally they won't let you look at things like that very long because they're unpublished texts and they're not yet on display, and so they won't let you, uh, let you see them. But this one was sitting uh, in the curator's office, and uh, I just happened to glance at it. It was a, a, a Greek text, and on the bottom was a line that read, this is his glory. And uh, the same Greek term that's used in the New Testament for glory, doxes, was the, was, was the word that was translated glory. And so I poked my friend and I said, what does that text say? And he started reading it. And what it was, was uh, a list of a man's uh, contributions to his city and uh, his assets as a, as a citizen of that city and corresponded uh, very closely to what we would call an obituary today. It listed all of his, uh, his offices in the, uh, in the city. He had been a representative to the local council, and uh, uh, I suppose he'd been the president of the Boy Scouts and all sorts of things. And then at the bottom it said, This is his glory. And uh, something dropped into, into place in my mind that uh, has helped me ever since to understand the meaning of that term glory in the New Testament. Because essentially what it, what it uh, signifies is worth. In the Old Testament, uh, the word glory, the Hebrew word for glory, has the idea of weight, of heaviness. And I think uh, the term has the same connotation in the New Testament. It, it signifies worth or weight or value. So when, when the New Testament talks about us having glory, it's talking about ultimate value. Now we understand that our glory is the character of Christ, which we uh, receive as a result of knowing him and worshiping him and depending upon him. But it helps us to see that that is our ultimate value. That's what is really worthwhile in life. The only thing that matters very much in the end is the extent to which we reflect and display the character of Christ. That's our real value. And I couldn't help but ask myself, I wonder what my, how my epitaph would read. And when it comes right down to it, the only thing that, uh, uh, that, that signifies a great deal is, the, is not so much the offices that we've held or the honors that we've received or the academic credentials that we have. It's the extent to which we, we live out the character of God. Uh, I was talking to a, a young lady up in uh, McCall here a few weeks back. I mentioned this to the men in the Wednesday morning class. We were uh, given an opportunity to use a friend's condominium for a while. And uh, as we were leaving, I was checking out with a young lady who was the housekeeper there. And she happened to be in the office working behind the desk. And I asked her a question about the use of the, of the facility, and she said, well, she said, I'm really not anybody around here. I don't know how to, how to answer that question. She said, I'm just the, I'm just the maid. 
And I said, oh, don't ever say that. Don't ever say I'm just a maid, because it doesn't really matter what we do. What matters is what we are. That's our real value, you see. That's our worth. Now, that's what Paul has been teaching us in these chapters in 2 Corinthians. Our ultimate value is our, is our character. It's the extent to which we display the character of Christ. And that character comes, as Paul puts it so beautifully in chapter 3, as a result of gazing at the face of Jesus. Now, some of you, that, that may sound a bit mystical, but what Paul is saying is that we, we preach the scriptures. We announce to you the, the, uh, the nature of Christ. And through that word, you see the Lord. You come to know him. And you come to worship him and depend upon him. And the result is that you begin to display increasing glory, is the way the NIV puts it. The NASB says, we go from one degree of likeness to Christ to, to the next, from glory to glory. And Paul says, that's our ministry. That's what we do. We go about getting people to look at the face of Jesus by teaching the word. And as people see his face and they come to know him and love him and fellowship with him and enjoy his presence, their lives are changed almost unconsciously. They begin to reflect the character of God himself. So that our ministry is one of teaching people the secret of, of character transformation. It's the, what we're doing is imparting beauty to people's lives. And that's why Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, having this ministry... We do not lose heart. That's the way he begins the chapter. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry. What ministry? The ministry of imparting to people the secrets of life, teaching them to, to know God and enjoy his presence and reflect his character. Since we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Now that word lose heart is an odd one. It, um, it doesn't occur too frequently in the New Testament, and it doesn't occur too frequently out, outside the New Testament, so Greek scholars are not really sure what it means. The, the, the form of the word itself would suggest something like bad out, but uh, it's probably closer to our word burnout. Paul says, having this kind of ministry, we don't burn out. We don't quit. We don't give up. We don't bail out. We don't get discouraged and, and give up. We, we, we stay with it. I, I've talked to so many people who would describe themselves as burned out. I, I talked to a man not too long ago who came from a church uh, in another state, and, and I uh, arranged to have lunch with him just to get acquainted with him. And, and he came very wary of my, uh, of my uh, intentions. He, he, he said, now look, I want you to understand, I was a deacon in the church from which I came. I... I ran a half a dozen committees. I, uh, I was involved in this and that and, and the other, and I organized uh, conferences and bazaars and, and clam bakes and all kinds of things. He said, I don't want to do anything in the church. Just leave me alone. He said, I just want to sit there. I'm burned out. That was the expression that he used. And I find a lot of people like that. They're just tired. They're just sick and tired of the whole deal. They, they don't want to be involved in the church because they've been used and abused and and, then, and they would describe themselves as, as burned out. And I run into pastors like that in our ministry with IMM. We very often find uh, men who, who just want to get out. 
They've, they've been at the thing for, for years and they, they don't see the results that they're after and they're tired of being abused by, uh, by their jobs and by their people and by their elders and they just want out. Well, Paul would understand. He, he had his bad days. He had his blue Mondays. He, he had uh, his bouts with the blahs. There were times that he didn't feel real good about his ministry, but Paul says, nevertheless, having this kind of ministry, we don't burn out, you see. The reason we do, I think, is that we don't have the right perspective on the ministry. We think it's doing a lot of things rather than imparting to people the secrets of life. Now, Paul says, having this ministry, we don't burn out. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. You're, if you have a New American Standard Bible, it says we have renounced the hidden things of, of shame, the things that we hide because we're ashamed of them. When we first got married, we had a sofa that someone gave us. It had a hole in the cushion right in the middle, and it was about that big around, and cotton was always extruding from the hole. And uh, uh, whenever somebody would come over to our house, the doorbell would ring or something, we would grab a pillow and just pitch it on the sofa. We got where it's all in the wrist. We got where we could just flip it right over the hole. <laughs> Because we were a little bit embarrassed about the hole in the, in the pillow. Paul says, that's what you do with things you're ashamed of. You tend to hide them. But he says, we don't have anything to be ashamed of. We're not, we're not hiding things. Uh, the, the shame he describes in a twofold manner here. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. Uh, the word for deception here... It literally means to do anything to, to get ahead. It's very much like our contemporary idiom, to con the folks. We don't con people. We're not religious hucksters. We don't deceive them. We don't try to be something that we're not. We're not dishonest. It's a lot of dishonesty, I think, in Christian service and ministry. Sometimes it simply takes the form of just not being honest and and real with people. Somehow we think that we can't have any influence on others unless we have our own uh, act together and, and we're, we're perfect. And because we know we're, we're not, then we try to, we try to fake it. And we, we put up a front because we're afraid that if people really see what we're like, they won't like us very well or we won't have much authority in their lives. They won't listen to us. But that's not true. It's so easy for those of us who teach in a, a, a little more prominent uh, position, who are up front, to, to give the impression that we've arrived because we have to teach the truth. And it's so easy for it to come across as though we're, we're there, but we're not. We know we're not. And, and if people know anything at all about us, they know we're not. And that doesn't put them off. As a matter of fact, I think it makes, it makes us more... Uh, more accessible when people realize that we're just like everybody else. We have the same struggles. Our intent is to be godlike, but but we fail just like everyone else does. I, I think I've told this story before, but I ran across a lady over on the West Coast. I was speaking at a conference, and uh, there's a very prominent physician there who who's had uh, both he and his wife have had quite an influence on the, the uh, medical community in that area. She was at this particular retreat, and I told some story about something I'd, I'd done to Carolyn. And, 
And everybody laughed, and afterwards she came up and she said, I want to tell you something that happened this last week. She said, Fred and I had this uh, enormous fight. We were in the kitchen just yelling at each other. And finally he got mad and he picked up his briefcase and he threw it in the back of the car and he drove off to work. And, and I was so frustrated and so angry, I was going through the kitchen slamming every cabinet door and swearing. And she would slam the door and she would uh, swear at her husband and she'd slam another door. That's a Christian lady. Very prominent Christian lady. And she happened to walk by this green door on the way to the refrigerator to slam it, I suppose. And she saw her neighbor standing there with a cup in her hand. Her non-Christian neighbor, whom she had been witnessing to for the last year. Now, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, she did what she should have done. She uh, sort of chuckled. (laughs) And she didn't cover up. She said, well, she said, now you see me as I really am. Now you know what I'm like apart from the grace of God. Now you understand what I would be like all the time if Jesus Christ were not Lord. And invited her in and... uh, um, Letter to Christ, eventually, not that particular day, but a bit later. (laughs) The Paul says, we don't play games with people. We don't try to be something that we're not. We're just honest. We're not deceptive. We're out front. We're transparent. There's reality there. And secondly, he says, we don't, um, not only do we not deceive people, we don't distort the, the Word of God. We don't uh, misappropriate Scripture. We don't use Scripture out of context in order to make some private and, and personal point. Uh, we don't try to twist uh, the Scriptures or, or wrest from them some meaning that's, uh, that's not there. Uh, the, uh, our friend, the Swami Rajneesh, uh, quotes uh, Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He quotes it this way. Blessed are those who purify their conscience, uh, for they shall see themselves as God. And he quotes that as Jesus' words, if you can believe that. That's distorting and, and twisting the scripture. Or you may have had people who come knocking on your front door, and they, they quote uh, to you Colossians 1.15 where Paul says, Jesus is the Im- image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And they'd say, yeah, you see there? Jesus is a created being. He's not God. He's a created being. He's the firstborn of all creation. It says so right there in Colossians 1.15. You say, oh my goodness, I didn't see that. You must be right. And uh, they deceive a lot of people and distort the scriptures by misusing a passage. All you have to do is read a little more carefully to see what he's saying. He starts out by saying he is the image of the invisible God. The word image means the exact representation of the invisible God. He's God made flesh. That's what he's saying. And furthermore, the word that's translated firstborn there is is the Greek word prototakos that means one who has the rights of the firstborn. It has nothing to do with origin, with point of origin. It means one who has the rights of primogenitor. The the firstborn in a Roman family or a Greek family always had special rights and privileges. 
And then the verse goes right on in the next uh, verse to say, the, the context goes right on in the next verse to say, for by him all things were created. It doesn't say for God created him. It says, for by him all things were created. Well, who created all things? God did. But you see, they'll take one little phrase, he is the firstborn, and twist it, and change it, and distort it to give it new meaning. Paul says, we don't do that. We don't make the scriptures mean just what we want them to mean, as the Cheshire cat did in Alice. We just speak it plainly, negatively. He says, we don't. Use it deceptively. We don't distort it. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We set forth the truth plainly. That's my justification, if I need it, for, uh, for teaching the scriptures expositorily. That is, simply going through the Bible and saying again what the apostles and prophets have said. I don't have any wisdom about life, do you? I don't know how to help people with their fear of death or their depression or uh, their, their feelings of inadequacy, their inability to, to cope with life. I don't know how to help them heal their marriages. I don't know too many people that do, but God does. And through the apostles, the apostles and prophets, he's given us wisdom from above. So our job, my job, your job, is simply to take the scriptures and say again what what the apostles and prophets have said. That's what preaching is all about. That's why I don't uh, preach topical sermons. I, I, I don't give you seven reasons uh, why I believe God is sovereign from seven different places in, in the scripture. If, if we want to talk about the sovereignty of God, we go to Isaiah 40 and see what Isaiah said. See. If we want to talk about sin, we go to Romans 3 and we talk about what Paul said. Not what I said. I don't know anything about sin. I don't know anything about the character of God except what the apostles and prophets tell us. Like John R. W. Stott says, uh, he, he preaches a topical sermon once every five years and then immediately repents thereof. <laughs> That's sort of my feeling as well. My, my responsibility as a, as, a, as a preacher of the gospel, one who announces the good news, is simply to say again what God has said. To, to study the text so that I think I understand what it means and then tell you what I think it means and then illustrate it to, so you won't go to sleep, tell, tell a few stories so that uh, you'll stay with me and then, uh, and then apply it, that is, show you the significance of the passage. That's what Paul is saying. We just take the, take the, the top off and let it shine forth. That's actually the meaning of the term, a shining forth, a manifestation of the truth. We just say again what God has said. And by the way, that's the basis of all ministry. Not just preaching, but uh, teaching a Sunday school class or evangelizing, sharing the gospel with someone, or counseling. Counseling, I think, is just one-on-one -on -one Bible study. You listen to a person long enough to Try to understand what the problem is, because very often the real problem is not the first problem. It's something else down underneath, and you listen and listen and listen long enough till you think you understand what it is. And then you, you, you take them to a passage of Scripture that speaks to that precise problem, and you hear what God has to say. People say, I can't counsel. I don't have, I don't have a degree in counseling. Well, sure you can. Sure you can. That's all counseling is. It's just telling people what, what God has said to them.
It's not what we say. I can't help anyone. You can't help anyone. But we can take people to the God who, who is the source of help. That's what Hebrews says. We can come boldly to, the, to find help, find grace to meet each need. You see? That's why Paul says we don't play games with people. We don't manipulate them. We don't, uh, we don't distort the truth. We don't deceive them. We, we just let the scriptures speak. That's the basis of our ministry. And every man's conscience is alerted, he says. Uh, what he means by that is that uh, the conscience intuitively, instinctively recognizes truth when it hears it. You know that? Truth circumvents the mind and the emotions and goes straight to the conscience. Uh, our conscience uh, validates reality, tells us whether something is real or not. My, I, I got a haircut last week and and uh, all I had in my wallet was a $20 bill, and I handed it to my barber, and Gary looked at that thing, and he went over to the wall, and he held it up against a picture of a $20 bill on the wall, and he said, well, that one's okay. And apparently someone's been going up and down Fairview passing off bogus $20 bills, and he was just checking mine against, uh, against the charts. I guess he thought I had a shifty look in my eye or something, but... <clears throat> But it, it, you know, something went off in his head when he saw that $20 bill. And that might not be the true thing. And he went back and checked it out. And Paul says, that's sort of the way the conscience functions. So when, when we hear something said, it, our conscience validates or invalidates the, the reality of that, of that statement. It's something instinctive. It's something intuitive. And we've all experienced it. Things have the ring of truth about them. Somebody says something and, ah, oh, that's right. That's right. I, uh, my, my favorite story to illustrate this is one, again, that I've used before. Please forgive me, but uh, when you've been someplace for seven years, occasionally you're going to hear the same story. <laughs> I have a friend who was called to testify at a trial that had to do with uh, the change of a state law that, that prohibited certain, uh, I don't want to go into too much detail, certain places of of amusement kept them certain distances from schools and they were going to change the law because there was one particular uh, individual who wanted to open up this place of business near one of the local high schools and my friend was called upon to testify because on a couple of occasions he had spoken out against this, uh, this particular issue. just didn't think it was good. So the attorney uh, for the, the man who wanted to build this, uh, this establishment was questioning him. And he said, Sir, you know that if my client doesn't build this, this particular building, that somebody else will sooner or later. It's just a question of time. And this man reached into his pocket. He had a little pocket New Testament, and he took it out, and he turned to Luke 17. He didn't say anything. He just started reading. Luke 17 starts out in this way. It says, It is impossible but that offenses should come. But woe be to him through whom they come, for it would be better for him that a millstone be hanged around his neck and he be cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. He just read it and put it back in his pocket. And he looked over the attorney's shoulder at the attorney's uh, client, and the man turned as white as a sheep. Now that's the, uh, that's the impact of truth. He didn't have to embellish it. He didn't comment on it. He just read it, put it back in his pocket, and it just hit dead center. 
I've seen that happen over and over again in, in uh, evangelistic uh, meetings and dormitories and fraternities and service clubs. I've seen it sitting across the table talking to people individually about the gospel. I've seen it in my own life. When I've encountered a truth, the heart says, that's right. As Pascal said, the heart has reasons that reason does not have. There are certain things that get that screwed right around mind and reason and attack the heart. And truth is one of them. That's why you, you don't ever have to defend the truth, for goodness sake. We don't have to protect the Bible. Luther said it's like a lion. You don't have to protect the lion. You just open the cage and let it out. It'll take care of itself. That's why the older I get, the less confidence I have in apologetics as a discipline. Apologetics, you know, is the defense of the Christian faith, the rational defense of the Christian faith. I've come to agree with Calvin. Calvin said that apologetics are a secondary aid to our imbecility. And I think he's right. I think he's right. They may help Christians a little bit to shore up their faith, but I don't think they're very convincing to non-Christians. I don't think they're overwhelming. They're handy to, to have, and it's good for us as Christians to know why we believe what we believe and to know that what we believe is, uh, has, some, has some reasonable supports. But I don't think it impresses anybody else. I, I think the best, offense, the best defense is a good offense. Just proclaim the gospel. That's all. Just tell people about the Savior. Tell them about the facts of, of life, the truth as it is in Jesus. That's reality. It just has a way of hitting people dead center. They know it's true. They may reject it, but they know it's true. Now, that raises the question, if that's so, that mere announcement of the truth uh, compels a hearing. Why is it that some don't don't believe? If we've all had the experience of, of talking to someone about the gospel and it just it just falls on deaf ears. It's like the seed that's sown on hard ground. It just bounces off and it seems that it doesn't penetrate at all. It doesn't seem to have any penetrating power. It doesn't seem effective. Why is that so? Well Paul anticipates that question in verse four. Verses three and four. Uh, in terms of understanding this passage, I see verses 3 and 4 essentially as parenthetical. He's answering the question I just raised. If it's true that our conscience is awakened by the gospel, why is it that some people don't see it when it's presented to them? Even if our gospel is veiled, he said, it is veiled to those who are perishing. We've run into this moral class before. It's not uh, that they are inexorably uh, uh, perishing. It's It's... It's simply that as long as they don't believe, they're dying. They're in a death-like state. We saw this group earlier in chapter uh, 3 where he says, We are a savor of death to those that are perishing. We don't smell well. We don't smell good to, uh, to people that are perishing. Now he says, if, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to this class, those who are perishing, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now some people read this as though it says the God of this world has blinded the minds of everyone in the world so that they can't see, but that's not what he says. He says he's blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that is those in the human race who have decided not to believe, who have 
at least for a time, hardened their heart to the gospel or to the truth, and they simply are unbelieving. They're resistant to belief. They don't want to trust anybody about, but themselves. I mean, I put, that, that, put it that crassly, but that's what it amounts to. I believe in me, they say, rather than in God. Well, what, what happens is that they play right into Satan's hands. He says, the God of this world then blinds their eyes so that they cannot perceive the truth when they, when they hear it. Now, we know from chapter 3, verse uh, 16, that whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, Paul says. The minute anyone says, Lord Jesus, help me. Or they will say, God, show me yourself. Reveal yourself to me. I want to know you. Then the veil is taken away and they can begin to see the truth. So again, a person who is blinded is not blinded for life. They're simply blinded as long as they choose to not believe. But anytime anyone will, will believe whatever truth he has, maybe it's just a little bit of truth, just a modicum of truth, and they go out in the backyard and they say, God, whoever you are, wherever you are, I want to know you. Then the veil is lifted and they begin to see the Lord. So the problem, again, is not intellectual. And it's not that Satan is uh, back there controlling the lives of people in this world to such an extent that they cannot believe. That's not the point. They can believe. But as long as they choose not to believe, then they become blind to the other elements of the gospel. And we've all seen it. Just a great confusion, darkness. They cannot. You can explain the gospel over and over and over. I've done that to people. I've illustrated. I've drawn pictures. I've used analogies. And they, they just are fogged out. They can't see it. But the problem, you see, lies underneath. They don't want to believe it. Well, what, what do you do then when you encounter someone like that? How do you handle that sort of situation? Uh, we have members of our family like that. And you do too. Not my immediate family, but, but uh, relatives that, that you, they just aren't interested. And you have business colleagues and, and friends uh, around you, neighbors that, that's, that are blind to the gospel. What do, you, what do you do? How do you get them to change their mind? Well, Paul explains in the verses that follow. Verse 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's what we do. We just keep on announcing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, preach is the term that's uh, usually used to translate the word. And when we think of preachers, we think of someone who's a professional uh, preacher, like myself, who, uh, uh, who does this sort of thing uh, to make a living. But uh, that's, that's not, the, uh, that's not the, the idea that Paul has in mind. The word for preaching it comes from a Greek noun, kerux. You know what the kerux was? He was a town crier. He was the fellow that came into town with the latest word from the, from the emperor and announced it to the populace. And Paul says, that's what we are. We're like a kerux. We're here to announce the good news. The king has spoken. Now, we have to be tactful about that. We don't necessarily shout it at the top of our lungs like the kerux did. And it doesn't have to be preached from a platform. He's simply talking about announcing the good news to people, telling them about the Savior. That's all could be done quietly across uh, a table in a, in a cup of coffee. It can be done to the person next to you, next to you at your workbench. It can be out while you're pheasant hunting. It can be while you're sitting with some friends uh, uh, chatting in the afternoon. It, it could be at any time, in any place, in any way. It's a simple announcement of the good news that, that Jesus is Lord. And you notice he makes that point. He's a sovereign Lord. He is Savior. 
But he's the king. He's the king. It's not a question of, of whether or not we want to bow to him. We all will someday. It's just a question of when. Will we do it now or then? See? Paul puts it that way in Romans 10. He, he says, if you confess with your heart, uh, confess, uh, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. You may not understand all that it means for Jesus to be Lord. He may have to fill that in for you as you grow, but, but we have to come to him on that basis. That he's Lord. We're going to submit to him. We're going to take his yoke upon us and learn of him. Paul says that's what we do. We, we announce that Jesus is Lord and then we, we serve you for Jesus' sake. It's interesting. He, he says, I'm not your Lord. I don't preach myself, which is what a lot of us uh, preachers tend to do. We want everybody to come to us for help. We want to be the master of everyone's life and destiny. And we get all bent out of shape if somebody goes to someone else for help. Well, that's not possible. We don't do that. We don't preach ourselves. We're not the source of help. What we, what we announce is that Jesus is Lord and, and we serve you. But he says, I want you to understand that you're still not our boss. Because we serve you for Jesus' sake. That puts things in, in a different light. Once, once we come to see that, that we are not the servants of one another for that person's sake, but for Christ's sake, it changes our perspective on servanthood. There are certain things I can do and certain things I can't do in serving. Understanding that helps us to be kind to the weak and the ugly and the disfigured and the, and the poor, but it also enables us to be stern and straightforward with the rich and the powerful and the influential. See, because we're not there to serve people. We're there to serve people for the Lord's sake. That makes all the difference in the world. We have a, a fellow, Henry Clay, who comes to clean our uh, press and take care of our equipment in the press room. Works for AM International. And uh, he comes in every once in a while to service those machines. He's there to serve us for the sake of AM International. But suppose he came in someday and, and Lois said, uh, Henry, would you please pick up all the paper clips that are on the floor and, and do you mind emptying the trash cans? And, and uh, do, you remember, do you mind running this uh, errand for me? I need to get something at the drugstore. Henry would have every right to say, no, I'm sorry. I, I'm not serving you. I'm serving you for the sake of AM International. See? It's all the difference in the world. It changes our our perspective on servanthood. We are Christ's servant to you for his sake, Paul says. And uh, the reason he does this, according to verse 6, is that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Uh, Paul says, I, I do all of this for you, because I know it works. It worked in me. You talk about darkness. He said, boy, I, I had it. Utter, absolute darkness. Paul, as you know, was a, sort of a hitman for the religious establishment in Jerusalem, and he was on his way up to Damascus to imprison and, and uh, murder Christians. had letters to that effect on his person. And, oh, he was mad. He says he was breathing out threatenings and murder uh, for, the, for the Christians. He hated Christians, and he hated Christ and everything he stood for. 
So on his way up to Damascus, and he was he was arrested on the spot by the risen Lord, who just stopped him in his tracks. And he saw this blinding light, and, and his response is, Who are you, Lord? He didn't understand fully, but he knew that this is someone who had come to take over. And from that point on, his life was radically changed. He saw who Jesus was. He, before, he just saw him as a crazy Palestinian, tub-thumping street preacher with no credentials to preach. And then he saw who he was. He was the risen God and changed his whole life. So you talk about dispelling darkness. Man, that was it. So it was, it was, the, it was like the original creation when everything was dark and God said, let there be light and the light shone. Paul said, that's the way it was in my heart, this big black heart, all sorts of evil motives, murderous thoughts and intentions. And I couldn't see, couldn't see for, I couldn't see the gospel. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Paul says, I know it works. If it will work on me, who, whom he uh, described as the chief of sinners, it will work in you. It will work in anybody doesn't make any difference what your life has been, been like. Maybe you've been a murderer in some sense because of uh, an abortion in your life, and you bear that guilt. Or maybe you've actually been a, a sort of murderer that we normally describe, someone who takes an adult human life. Or maybe you've been an adulterer, or maybe you've been a liar, or a swindler, or a cheat. Or, and, and you're thinking, oh, that disqualifies me. I'm too far gone. Paul says, it worked for me. I was the worst of the lot, and it worked for me. God said, let the light shine, and I saw it, and it changed the whole course of my life. And now wherever I go, he said, I just announce the good news. I just tell people that Jesus is Lord, and I, and I serve them for his sake, and I don't give up. I just keep at it, keep plugging away, because I know it works. I know it changes lives. I've got the secret of, of transformation of life. And I have to ask the question, how come we keep it to ourselves, for goodness sake? Mostly out of fear. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. One of the reasons that we don't proclaim the, the good news is that we're afraid. We're afraid of people's reactions. We don't know what to say. We're afraid that they'll turn off, that they won't be interested. They'll reject us. But the same God, you see, who changed our lives is adequate to change the lives of others. Just need to ask them. Most profound answer I ever got from a from a friend was when I asked him once how 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 you know when someone is interested in talking about spiritual things and his answer was I ask him how do you know I ask him and I and I ask you that question myself have you asked anybody lately it's one of the it's one of the best uh, leading questions I know just ask them do you have any interest in spiritual things and just listen to them. And then when the right time comes, when you've won the right to be heard because you've listened and you've established a relationship by listening, then you can announce to them the good news that Jesus is Lord. We all need a Lord. We need somebody to take all the pieces of our life and, and put them together and make sense out of them and give us the power to be what we know we want to be. Just need to tell people that. And let me say, too, that if you're here and you don't know that truth, Jesus is Lord. And he's not put off by your sin or your rebellion. He's, he just keeps reaching out after you as he did the Apostle Paul. 
he was the hound of heaven with reference to Paul. He ran him down, drew him in. And that's what he wants for us as well. Let's pray. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. He's not a hard taskmaster. He just wants us to submit to his lordship, to be linked together with him and his yoke, and he'll bear our burdens for us, and he'll teach us how to live. If you've never known Christ to be that kind of person and you'd like to know him, all you have to do is, as he puts it, come to him and take his yoke upon you. Just come and believe in him and submit to his lordship. Tell him that you want him to reign and rule in your life and, and you want him to turn on the light so you can see the truth as it is in Jesus. You can do that this morning. You can pray along with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on my, for my sins. Thank you for being my Savior. Come into my life now. Make me the right, right kind of person, the, the sort of person that you long for me to be. Thank you for coming into my life. And Lord, we... Uh, we just thank you for being our Lord, for being the one who, who teaches us, tells us things as they really are, imparts reality to us in a world where there's so much illusion, so much lack of the real thing. We thank you that you came to give us authentic life, to show us what works and what doesn't, what causes pain and what delivers from pain what increases our anxiety and what sets us free from it. Help us, Lord, to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. Help us to take the truth where it needs to be taken, to be faithful in our discharge of, of responsibilities, responsibilities as ambassadors or representatives of Christ. We, we ask these things knowing that you hear us and that you strengthen us to do them. In Jesus' name, amen.